You're listening to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. Well, Tony Blair's been at it again. He's been on the Today programme and uh, giving a speech at Chatham House about how Brexit should be stopped. Indeed, he's asked uh, that Article 50 be delayed. This isn't surprising, of course. Tony Blair has been more and more uh, frequently in the news um, advocating for his causes. But is he the right man to do so? Or is he so toxic that actually his interventions are counterproductive um, to the causes that he advances? We'll be looking at public opinion on that issue uh, later on this show. We'll also be talking about uh, events elsewhere in Westminster. Parliament has voted to approve a third runway at Heathrow. But what does the public think? And actually, how will the politics of this play out in the coming months and years? We're also going to be talking about something very, very relevant to this podcast, which is uh, another example of polling being in the dock. Or the dock of sorts. Uh, a new Bloomberg article uh, recently has examined the relationship between pollsters and hedge funds during the Brexit referendum. And we'll be asking uh, just how close is that relationship and is it appropriate? And what does it mean for how polling might change in the future? A long running discussion point on this show. So to join me to go through some of these topics, as ever, the podcaster in crime, Leo Barassi. Leo, welcome back to Polling Matters. Hello, Kieran. So we've we promised we're not going to mention the VAR today. Um, there's no mention of Germany going out of the World Cup. So I think we're going to, so far, so good on that score. Um, but where shall we start? There's a few topics there to, to get our teeth into. I want to start with Bloomberg. And I want to do that because it hasn't had all that much follow up. But actually, I think there's some quite substantive stuff in there that, particularly for this show and for, for our listeners, I think is worth just spending a bit of time thinking about. So for those of us uh, who haven't had a chance to read the article yet, um, I'll go through um, the kind of the main points and the main issues that, that come out of it. So this is a uh, investigation. I think it's fair to call it. It's, you know, it's more than, more than just a, a quick news story. It's obviously a lot of work's gone into it by Bloomberg called The Brexit Short. And essentially they're suggesting that hedge funds made a vast amount of money correctly betting on the direction the pound would move around the referendum results. And if you kind of pick apart the article, I make it that there are three separate parts to what they're talking about. So first, they are saying that hedge funds were paying polling agencies to conduct private exit polls um, and they name, well, most of them really, ICM, Servation, Populous, YouGov, Comres, BMG, uh, no opinion, no Ipsos Mori, as far as I could tell, but, but most of them there. And what was going on here is there was no BBC exit poll on referendum night, as, as there is on general elections. So hedge funds wanted to have their exit polls uh, privately done so that as the early results came in, um, they would be able to look at, say, what the vote was in Sunderland, compare it to their own data and say, well, it got this, therefore we can predict that, that that's going to happen. So um, it was essentially a way of them getting ahead of the results and being able to see which way the pound was going to move, obviously on the basis that with the remain result, the pound was going to go up with leave, the pound was going to go down. Um, these were serious exit polls. I mean, John Curtis is named as, as helping with them. So... Um, this is, you know, uh, this is a major operation. Uh, so that's the first part. The second part, and I think this is where it gets a bit more uh, murky, is a specific allegation about YouGov. Um, now, YouGov was publishing the only exit poll that was was put up publicly on the night. This wasn't BBC. This was published by Sky. And 
what's important to bear in mind is that when that poll came out um, after 10, 10 p.m., after the, the voting had finished, um, it was predictable that the value of the pound was going to move. So uh, the pound would predictably go up if the poll showed it that there was going to be remain and go down if it showed it was going to leave. So if you knew before 10 o'clock what YouGov were going to say their exit poll showed, then you had the chance to make an awful lot of money because you could bet which way the pound was going to move. And it doesn't matter whether that was ultimately going to be the right result or not. You just knew that the markets would react to the one and only public exit poll and the, and so the pound would move in response. And the article suggests that YouGov sold a private exit poll to one single client for around a million dollars. And clearly that would have been great value. I mean, the amount they could make would be obviously vastly more than that $1 million if the private exit poll showed the same results as the public one. And you've got, to, you've got to think there that if you're the buyer of that poll, you would have checked pretty carefully that the poll you were buying was going to be done in a similar way as possible to the one that was published. Otherwise, it wouldn't be all that useful and you could have gone elsewhere. Um, there's also an allegation in there that when YouGov um, reported their exit poll, on Sky, uh, they were they were under pressure to report it as showing that Remain were going to win, rather than saying that the result was too close to call. So not to fix the numbers, I think it was fifty two forty eight, um, but essentially to say um, that that it, that pointed to a Remain win rather than describe it as too close to call. Now, I, uh, as, as I read the article, it looks like YouGov are denying that allegation, but it was certainly there and Bloomberg felt comfortable printing it. The third part of the article is essentially that Nigel Farage knew about these exit polls and basically uh, knew that the exit polls showed that Leave was gonna win, um, but early in the evening conceded, effectively lying, that he thought that Remain was gonna win and did so intentionally to push up the value of the pound um, for um, for financial reasons. I'm not sure whether it's, it's supposed to be about him or, or about people that he was close to um, when he knew that uh, the pound would actually fall uh, once it was clear that Leaf was going to win. So various different parts to it, a few things to sort of get into. I mean, to me, this feels feels like a big deal and it feels like the rules we've got at the moment aren't working in situations like these um but i don't know it's a complicated story and i mean kieran what what do you what do you make of it it is a complicated story i think part of the problem is you've got lots of things going on there you've got nigel farage you've got hedge funds which are you know seen as a murky sort of suspicious group of group of uh, people obviously with lots of money that they can spend on things and then you've got kind of what the pollsters are doing um, it's difficult to untangle those things. Those things. I think you've done a reasonably good job at you know doing that with the, with the sort of three themes you've identified. Um, what do I think? I mean, ultimately, pollsters are businesses, aren't they? So I mean, they are they they, they are paid to provide data that informs business decisions, um, whether it be in politics or elsewhere. So it isn't surprising that they've developed products that you know can can make them lots of money on on election nights. I suppose for me, I mean, you can argue about the ethics or otherwise of doing that um, and the currency things. For me, the thing I'm most interested in is how this plays alongside the role that 
pollsters have in our democratic process, which is obviously very strong. Um, I'll have a chapter in a book out soon on this, um, and one of the central things that I central arguments I make, not related to this specific point, is that pollsters have a hugely important role in our democracy because the way the media reports the political process is largely dependent on the information that they receive from polls. I mean, not only it's not that's not the only information that they use, but it really does um, dominate how the media report politics. Yeah, we we could go through so many different examples of that in the past five years, let's say. But let's look at the future. Like, if if polls show a significant shift against Brexit, that is going to inform the entire debate. So polls are really important in democracy. But then there is a difference between public opinion polls, such as the ones we're used to seeing and we talk about on this podcast, and exit polls. And exit polls are done, um, in terms of the one that's done on general election day, they're done with real voters uh, at polling stations. Um, Well, this is an interesting point, right? You know, when I was first reading the article, I was sort of shaking my head thinking, but hang on, you can't do an exit poll with a referendum because normally, don't you do exit polls by... Um, with general elections by comparing voters and the change the change in the vote from the previous election yeah um, yeah i mean normally so it's obviously it's a different thing here isn't so it? so i mean i don't think it's a coincidence here that um the two two companies my company gfk and, and, and ipsos mori uh, who i think you mentioned weren't involved in this um the two companies that work on the exit the general election exit poll weren't involved in this and that's probably for a similar that's probably because of that kind of reason i think Elsewhere in the article, it mentions that John Curtis had kind of indicated, I think, that it couldn't really, an exit poll for the Brexit vote couldn't really be done in the same way as a general election for exactly that reason, because you have nothing to model it against in terms of past vote. And you're absolutely right. The general election exit poll, which is so uh, fabled for being so accurate, is done by, the is, is successful for two reasons. One is because you know you've got voters because they're there. So there's none of this, oh, have we got voters or not? And it's, and it's done modelling the swing in different areas uh, from one party to another and so on. I, I don't quite know what methodology um, these... The, I mean, I, assume, I presume YouGov have used some kind of uh, complicated online methodology with modelling uh, supporting it. Um, with Servation, I can only guess that they use telephone. So they've, they've obviously had to come up with their own very unique ways of doing this. And I know that from a GFK perspective, we were just not convinced that it could be done uh, properly. And but whatever they did was clearly able to convince people with a lot of money and some very smart financial analysts. Yeah, and, and to be honest, Leo, I mean, I, I know it's not really the point, but like you got to, you kind of got to commend them for having a bit of the, the guts to do this. I mean, um, I, I wouldn't want to be sticking my neck out on 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 the, the, what the morning of the twenty fourth of June saying, "Oh yeah, I know all the polls say well." A lot of the polls say it's going to be Remain. Oh, but but by the way, this exit poll we've kind of made up for this one particular occasion to show that it's Leave. Put all your money there. And I'd, so, I'd, love, I'd love to have seen the contracts on that. But I mean, so, on the, so just, I, but, I see that. But I guess the thing, and I think I agree that that part doesn't feel too unethical to me. It's essentially it's not so different from buying private public opinion polls. I think the thing that I find most troubling is any suggestion that people were able to effectively buy inside information about what the published exit poll was going to be. That feels like a, like a corruption of the sort of the broadcasting and polling process. Uh, because that's that that does feel like insider trading. And I mean, I use that term as a complete non-expert, but... I feel like if we have this situation again, 
where there isn't an authoritative BBC exit poll that is done in absolute secrecy by John Curtis and his team or, or anyone else. And let's say we have a referendum, the 2023 referendum on whether we should leave NATO, mm. uh-huh. um, <laughs> then, you know, if we're in this situation where, again, there's no proper exit poll, aren't we going to have exactly the same thing again, where you uh, are doing a sky exit poll or whatever, and someone can buy that insider information and make an awful lot of money on it? Well, hold, hold, um, that hold, feels like that should be regulated. Hold, hold that thought. I mean, one of the thing I was going to get to in, in kind of what I was describing is that you know, polls have a, a role in our democracy and, you know, the public opinion polls have a certain view. I mean, there is the, the distinction between the public opinion polls and exit polls is important here, in my opinion, because what you could find is a situation where the public opinion polls, let's say in 2015, this had happened. Um, the public opinion polls had shown the Tories and Labour neck and neck. Um, but then exit polls were done on the day by hedge funds that showed actually the Tories were going to win. You could have made an absolute fortune there. And the discrepancy between the two um, is, is, is a bit troubling. So, yeah, I mean, the regulation, you know, it's, it's, another, it's another string to the bow of people that want regulation. But I, but I would say, Leo, on, on that point, it, it, it has, there's laws of unintended consequences as well. Because, again, one of the things I've heard lots of people argue for during general election campaigns is, a, is, is banning of polls two weeks up to the uh, polling day. If you do that, you know these these hedge funds and people they're they're going to want to find out themselves as well, right? Either with uh, conventional polls or exit polls on the day. So how you regulate this is going to be really really tricky. And so I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I don't quite agree. know how I you do it. If anything, what this story shows is exactly the opposite argument that it's when you have a dearth of public data that private companies were able to make money. Actually, you're exactly right. If there had been no public opinion polls whatsoever during the two weeks, the situation would have been far worse and there would have been far more people commissioning their private polls to try and find out what was going to happen and try and make money on the back of it. I think what this points to is the importance of the being uh, authoritative public exit polls that are published at 10 p.m. uh, with full data that no one can get wind of in advance because otherwise you're just going to carry on getting this it doesn't it doesn't stop what it doesn't stop you doing though is having someone running an exit poll almost simultaneously so let's say next general election same thing happens as usual gfk and epsos are doing their face-to-face data during the day feeding it through to the bunker as it were in the bbc and they're crunching the numbers curtis et al nothing to stop somebody else doing something a similar process or a different methodology simultaneously exactly the same time feeding that data through to a hedge fund instead and those guys modeling it during the day as the results come in so my point is long-winded way of saying the 10 o'clock thing yeah that's good once the once the bbc sky news um exit polls out at 10 great nothing to stop a hedge fund during the day trying to do something similar and if the pollsters aren't allowed to do it, could they bring that in-house? I mean, yeah, I mean, this has to be looked at, clearly. Um, but I think I would I would stop clear of, I'm not, I'm not saying you're saying this, but I think we have to be careful about saying what if the pollsters have done something quote-unquote wrong. I mean, they are private companies, they're not charities. But I mean, I think we have to be yeah, careful should, about... There, there, is, there is a very specific allegation about how YouGov presented the uh, result in its exit poll, um, which... Essentially, the Bloomberg article suggests that under their contract with Sky, they were they were able to, or perhaps they should describe it as. I think they were able to describe it as within margin of error or too close to call mm. um, when it was that close, and and it suggests that 
uh, under pressure. I mean, I think it's it's a fairly clear reading between the lines um, that uh, they presented it as um, a as win for Remain. Um, now, that does feel alarming, if that was the case. Um, but, I mean, it's an allegation. You go denied it. They've denied it, though, right? It's like it should be followed up. Yeah, and I, again, I think um, the question then becomes who follows that up? Uh, is that the British Polling Council? Is that somebody else? Um, these are all questions that are going to have to be answered, I suppose. But I mean, um, yeah, I mean, ultimately, there is a whole philosophical argument here with polling about who the client is. And um, I think one of the things we all have to think about is if the main vehicle for opinion polls that shape our discourse in politics and how people view politics are are continue to be provided for basically free for media organizations as a marketing tool that i worry about i'd like i'd like to see us more down the american route where universities are funding things that are more authoritative and there's i don't know there's there's a way of making money out of this stuff for for, for pollsters that, that, <laughs> well that, they found a way of making money with this well right? well yeah and i guess who's going to outbid a hedge fund right but i, I it's it, then these these companies can't exist for free, and I know it's a very cynical way of uh, a cynical argument to make, but it does have to be made. People have to make money, and if if you found in any walk of business, if you found a way of making hundreds of thousands, if not millions of pounds, doing something in a reasonably quick turnaround fashion, you'd do it. So what we've got to look at is, you know, are there unintended, um, unethical consequences to that? And if so, let's let's put a stop to it definitely. But I mean. It, it, it's a tricky one, isn't it? Because it comes down to how, how you regulate private enterprise. And that's that's kind of it. Um, let's talk about some specific uh, numbers that have been out this week, though. Um, I mean, th- this was a probably what we just talked about was a reasonably niche uh, event in, in the world of Westminster. But there's been a big vote on, um, on, on Heathrow and a third runway. The thing that sort of rumbles on feels like it never goes away. I thought we should talk about it this week, Leo, because um, you've got your book out, haven't you? The, the, well, it has been out for some time, The Climate Majority, which uh, isn't about Heathrow, but looks at um, how uh, sort of pro- people on the sort of pro-environmental uh, side of things can build coalitions to convince people um, to take these things more seriously. Um, and therefore, you're something of an expert in this field. So I, I kind of wanted to understand a bit about what public opinion says about Heathrow, but also how this fits into the, the wider environment. Right, well... The thing about polling about Heathrow and UK airport expansion in general is that it's pretty poor. Um, and that's because um, most of the polling is commissioned by uh, industry groups and, and campaign groups that are trying to support uh, expansion. And they get their questions phrased in, um, in ways that are very helpful to their cause. Um, a rare exception to this was a couple of questions in a YouGov poll from 2015 which found that uh, 53% believe that uh, UK air, uh, airport capacity should be expanded um, and uh, only 25% disagree with that. Um, and then on the question of uh, where it should be, people are fairly evenly split. And that's it was a, que- a question that gave a lot of options, uh, including building a new hub, hub airport in the north of England, which just narrowly won. Um, so the basic point is most people uh, think that airport expansion should be happening. 
Um, and honestly, I'm not really that surprised by those numbers. I think it's probably what I would have expected. And that's because the discussion around um, Heathrow expansion and airport expansion in general is very much framed as the economy versus the environment. And we know from um, from other polls um, and another research that you rarely get more than a fairly small minority saying that when it's when it's framed like that, that they would be prepared or they would prefer that uh, the environment is prioritised over the economy. You know, it's interesting, isn't it? Heathrow, um, I mean, one of the things that I don't... I mean, what, what's the story with this, Leo? Could a future Labour government in two years from now stop it? Right, yeah, I mean... Uh, the various decision points about Heathrow come up every couple of years. They always feel mightily important at the time. And then a few years later, I there's mean, uh, yeah. something that either advances it or, or reverses it. I, I pose the I question mean, because... A lot. I pose the question because um, John McDonnell is obviously the shadow chancellor. And I think an overlooked point on this, and I'm sure lobbyists haven't overlooked this point, is that... You know, he. I mean, if Boris Johnson's going to bottle it, I don't think John McDonnell has chance of the wood, right? I mean, he he he, he fly the Heathrow is uh, the airspace is over his constituency and so on. So I think right. if he, and, and this is uh, an infrastructure project that is going to take a lot of public money. So yeah, it so would be very easy for a chancellor to find ways of throttling it. So so John McDonnell, if he's ever chancellor, is probably going to stop this. I mean, I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's an overly simplistic way of looking at it, but I mean, I feel like it's a reasonable way of looking at it. Um, well, as you say, I mean, he is a pretty staunch opponent of it. It would be uh, surprising uh, for someone who is uh, obviously uh, seen as an extremely principled person, um, whether or not people agree with his principles, um, to yeah, I mean, have a, a about turn on this. I actually think John McDonnell is possibly more pragmatic on some issues than people give him credit for, but I, I don't think... Um, uh, not that not, not that opposing Heathrow is not pragmatic, but I, I, I don't think this is an issue where he's going to bend a bit to sort of accommodate accommodate a sort of more centrist position. I reckon he'll do that on other things. Um, uh, I, I suspect maybe immigration, but uh, that and freedom of movement, that sort of stuff. But anyway, we'll come back to that later. Um, but just on this environment issue, I mean, how does this all feed into the work you've been doing on um, and looking at public opinion on this? Because it seems to me, I mean, you mentioned earlier that. There's a conflict between the economy, or there's a perceived conflict between the economy, infrastructure, and the environment that clearly exists in public opinion. So, I mean, what are the what are the sort of cleavages and sort of dynamics at work there? Right. Well, this decision, I think, is um, important both in itself and sort of what it says about where our politics are going and and issues like this are going over the next few years so i mean first from a climate perspective i think we should be clear that building a new runway would make it much harder for the uk to meet the climate emissions targets that we've signed up to that are part of our domestic laws and that we've signed up to internationally um i mean to, uh, difficult to the point of probably effectively being impossible um, certainly it's very hard to see how it can realistically be done it once the runway is built and people started using it wouldn't that be um, wouldn't that be the same if uh, they just didn't do Heathrow and did Gatwick and Stansted or so right yeah it's it's um, not a Heathrow specific thing it's about expanding the capacity yeah. I mean the um, uh, the Davis Commission the airports commission that uh, a couple of years ago recommended building at Heathrow did say it had found a way of reconciling Heathrow expansion with the UK's climate uh, climate targets. What it did was um, 
uh, hypothesized that a price on emissions would be introduced um, and that price on emissions would be so high, about £350 a tonne, which is extremely high, um, that ticket prices for uh, destinations everywhere would ramp up by the tens or hundreds of pounds to the point where many people would be put off flying. The Heathrow capacity would be used, but regional airports across the UK would stop increasing because people would no longer want to fly from there because tickets would be so expensive. So essentially, that was their way of doing it. I mean, that's not going to happen. No. It's clearly not going to happen. So they've ticked the box. Yeah, we can we can show a way of reconciling it with the climate targets, but in a way that no one remotely thinks is ever going to happen. So um, there's a sort of immediate problem with, with the runway in terms of the emission target. But I think what I'm interested in is what this says about some of the some of the other stuff that's coming down the road because when we're thinking about climate climate issues and how the uk has been dealing with climate stuff over the last last couple of decades or 10 years at least we've actually been really good the uk is one of the leading countries globally in in our climate stuff and that's because we've done things like get rid of uh coal power uh, i mean that's that's been the single biggest thing we've improved efficiency of uh, you know things like improving light bulbs and and stuff like that and our fridges are much more efficient than they used to be but we've essentially done done a load of things that people either don't notice like closing down coal power stations or quite like like making our electricity bills cheaper because we've got more efficient appliances um, and that's been really good um, and it ha hasn't been very difficult for governments to do because not many people oppose it. Mm. The trouble is we are in the not too distant future going to reach the end of the road of that kind of quite easy stuff. And we're going to start getting to things that uh, are more noticeable or more inconvenient. And that's things like uh, what we do about flying. It's things like what we do about meat, because uh, it depends how you count it. But meat is perhaps about 20 percent of um, of the UK's emissions. So that's going to have to fall if we're going to have to uh, going to reach, so reach what, what, our target. So what, why is that, Leo? Is that because the cows leave the lights on at night or is that because... Um, uh, so, um, I'm two, joking, but go on. Uh, two main reasons. Um, so it's about changing what land is uh, is used for. So if you chop down trees and put um, grassland there instead, then you're releasing the, um, um, the carbon that was in the trees. But actually, the, sort of the biggest thing from the UK is that uh, it sounds ridiculous, but it is genuinely a massive factor. Cows and sheep burp and fart methane um, in prodigious quantities. And it, sound, it sounds like it shouldn't be a thing, but it is genuinely a massive issue. And um, at the moment, there's no serious way of, of getting past it. So, and, um, and so specifically, cows and sheep um, are much worse than, than other animals in, in terms of their... their uh, uh, noxious gases. So it's not uh, transporting. So that's interesting because I would have so, thought it's transporting them around, right? But you're saying it's actually just them existing. Yeah, yeah, it's a fairly small part of it. It is part of it, but um, it's it's not the biggest. And actually, um, I mean, the transport sector as a whole is obviously also a massive source of emissions in the UK. So cars, lorries, um, uh, um, you know, they're the biggest delivery vans, of course. But the thing is, that is getting fixed. Like, um, we are going to be getting rid of the internal combustion engine within the next couple of decades. Electric cars are coming in. That That is, okay, it's harder than, say, closing down the coal sector because people will notice. But in the end, people are going to go for it because electric cars are going to be really good. They're mm. going to be better than petrol and diesel cars are. So that's kind of hard. But what worries me is we're moving towards a, a time 
um, where we're going to have to start uh, dealing with flying. We're going to have to start dealing with meat. We're going to have to start dealing with how we heat our homes. Now, you and I, we live in London, Kieran, so we've got uh, homes that are heated by gas. Now, at some point, we're probably going to have to stop heating our homes with gas and start heating them with electricity or maybe some other kind of gas. People are going to notice and it's probably going to be expensive. It's probably going to be disruptive, but it's got to, it's got to happen if the UK is going to beat its target. Now, the trouble is, what worries me at the moment, you've got about 20% of the public who are really behind this kind of thing and really enthusiastic. You've got about 20% who hate it and will oppose anything that sounds green. And then you've got around 50 to 60% who are basically in the middle. They agree that climate change is real. They're, they're not climate deniers uh, by any means. They're, they're out, they, you know, they get that it's a problem that the world's got to deal with, but they just don't think about it much. Uh, they're not that into the debate. Uh, they kind of think it's it's sort of under control or stuff's happening with it. Um, and so it kind of passes by. And then when it, it comes to trying to, to uh, suggesting that we might have to say not expand Heathrow, it's those people in the middle who just sort of say, well, but hang on, really? Mm. Are we going to, to use the framing that we talked about? Are we going to sacrifice the economy for the sake of the environment? And they sort of, essentially, they haven't got to the point of of, of seeing, as, as I think all, the, all the, the science and economic analysis is clear, that the two aren't in conflict, that um, the economy is going to massively suffer if we don't deal with climate change. It's interesting uh, because what, what you're saying <clears throat> rings true. I, I think you have to make these things re- relatable to people's lives, don't you? I think if you're talking about, I mean, without making this too, too much about London, I know, but there was stuff in, in, in the Evening Standard the last few months about air quality in London, right? That's something that people can sort of almost touch and understand, okay, we need to do something about pollution because I'm taking my kids to school and they're breathing in bad air and that sort of thing. I think that people people can relate to that and want action taken. If you're saying that energy bill's going to go up, I mean, whoa, I think that's, um, that's going to be tricky, right? Because you can imagine what people would say. They're going to say, well, hang on a minute, you know, I, I sympathize with what you're saying, but I've got to go to work. I've got to pay the bills. And suddenly, you know, you're telling me my, my, my energy bill is going to go up a lot. It's going to be really difficult, isn't it? Right. Yeah, it's a hard argument. I mean, I think I would uh, dispute that specific case. I mean, in fact, energy bills have uh, have gone down partly because homes are much more energy efficient and uh, uh, onshore wind is now arguably the cheapest way of making power in the UK. I thought you, I thought you said earlier that... Um we're going to have to use like non-gas forms of energy and that's going to put bills up. No, did I misunderstand that? Uh, well, it's going to be disruptive when you make the change. And so, okay. So energy bills, if we're thinking about uh, gas and electricity, that's one thing. And I think you can kind of make the argument either way, probably in the long term, they will, they will get cheaper because of green stuff. But mm. um, the thing is, I mean, you know, uh, a boy, a boiler might cost a couple of thousand pounds. If you, if you kind of have to replace it because uh, something else, then, um, yeah, that's that's having to cost. But I mean, essentially, what what I say in in the book, the Climate Majority, uh, published uh, in September, plug plug. Um, Seamless, is... that was effortless. That was that was seamless. Thank you, thank you, Let's all dwell you. on how seamless Leo's plug uh, was there. Well done. <laughs> um, is 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 basically we we have to start having the, these conversations and these arguments because there's a lot of stuff that's that's really difficult um, uh, that can't just kind of happen. Governments can't kind of do in the background that. Uh, as a as a as a society and, and globally every country's got a is started having these conversations and needs to carry on having them mm. um that we kind of have to confront that as well as the easy stuff and the nice stuff there are some fairly difficult things and 
if no one is willing to have those kind of conversations, then we'll keep on uh, building new runways because uh, climate change will always be shunted down the list of stuff we're paying attention to and there'll always be another reason and we'll keep on thinking that it's been sorted. Speaking about conversations that people don't want to have, um, Tony Blair's been in the news um, in the last day or so talking about stopping Brexit. And as as, as I mentioned in the introduction, um, this is something he does periodically. He sort of comes along and and I think specifically he's been talking about delaying Article 50. He's criticised the government and Theresa May for um, their sort of lack of progress in talks and things like that. And he's had a barb, of course he has, at the Labour Party and leadership um, about sort of not, you know, failing to oppose and that sort of thing. And this is something we've talked about a bit on this podcast in previous episodes, but it's worth revisiting because I think that it's very relevant. Um, Tony Blair's intervention here is very relevant to the whole debate that's going on about Brexit and particularly in the Labour Party and on the left around what Labour's policy should be because, it, you know, I, I bring up Labour here because it's a party that its voters primarily voted Remain and are very sort of pro-European, however you want to interpret that, whether reversing Brexit or just more softer on Brexit. Um, but their leadership um, isn't really like that, and I suppose every time Blair intervenes, um, you know it does it does lay that sort of d- dichotomy uh, bare. But at the same time, I mean, as I said in the introduction, I wonder whether he's a bit of a uh, I don't know a bit sort of his interventions are counterproductive. Now I want to come on to some polling on that in a moment, but before we do, I mean it's interesting, Leo, isn't it that the prime ministers, the former prime ministers that we have, I think we have what four that are alive. They have very different reputations, don't they? And uh, one, you know, Major is almost seen as this kind of uh, elder statesman um, who's very widely respected. Gordon Brown intervenes every now and then. Um, I don't know what the view is on on him, really. Um, I think some, somewhere uh, between him and Blair is. Uh, yeah, uh, probably. And, and David Cameron. David Cameron's one interests me because he, I guess he's, he's he's doing the traditional thing of not getting involved too much because he's the last one out of office. But I, you do wonder, don't you, if, if he threw his uh, if, if he threw his tuppence into the mix and said, you know what, the talks are going really badly, uh, Article 50 might have to be delayed. I'm sure the Brexiters would loathe him for it. But that would feel more impactful than Tony Blair. I mean, I don't know. I mean, what, it's, in, it's just interesting to look at the past prime ministers and the reputation that they have, because it's fair to say they're not all revered, are they? Yeah. Well, as we've seen before, the clear dividing line is that Tory ex-prime ministers are really liked by current Tory voters. Uh, I think Cameron is a bit less popular among leave Tory voters, but uh, the real division is that current Labour voters generally don't like ex-Labour prime ministers. Uh, It's particularly the case for Blair, but it's also the case for for Brown, uh, to an extent which I think has surprised me. Um, So, um, yeah, both of them are disliked by people from the other party, but uh, sorry, all of them are disliked by people from the other party. But um, yeah, the uh, La- Labour voters, Labour supporters tend to be particularly sceptical about their former prime ministers. Yeah, and to put some numbers to that, I mean, there's all sorts of numbers um, that you could look at. And one of the things we did uh, back in January, there was, a, there was a, an opinion survey that we looked at, political betting opinion survey. Um, which asked, um, do you find the following people trustworthy or untrustworthy when it comes to Brexit? And for Tony Blair, 15% found him trustworthy and 57% found him untrustworthy. 41% said he was very untrustworthy. So that gave him a negative trust rating of minus 42. And just to compare to some others, Nick Clegg had a rating of minus 24. Um, who else? Boris Johnson, minus 20. Just looking, through, just looking through these numbers here. Theresa May at the time was minus six. 
Jeremy Corbyn minus six as well, so kind of slightly uh, negative, but pretty neutral. Mark Carney, governor of the Bank of England, was the only person... Um, sorry, Nigel Farage was minus 19. So bear in mind, Blair minus 42, Farage minus 19. Okay. Um, probably not surprising. And that, that, again, that comes down to both of them are loathed by a group of the public, but... Farage, Farage has his supporters, doesn't he? Really like him. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Um, Mark Carney was plus 10. So, you know, not a ringing endorsement necessarily. 30% trusted, 20% did not. Um, he was the only one with a positive um, trustworthy rating on, on the list that we tested. And maybe that's something we should revisit, actually, and sort of expand the list. But I guess the point is, I mean, that you could you could look at that poll we've just cited. You could look at favorability figures. You could look at um, who's made a good prime minister or a bad prime minister in the past. We've done that on this podcast before. But I think the point is, um, Tony Blair, extremely unpopular. And you just wonder... Um, with the Labour Party, whether where it hurt, whether, whether this is helping. I mean, um, there's a Unite conference, and we were talking about off air coming up, isn't there? I think it's early July, where there are there is talk that one of the motions that's being put forward um, is is about sort of backing a people's vote or a second referendum. And there's a lot of criminology that's been written about um, in the Labour Party about this. I can't remember if it was George Eaton or Stephen Bush, um, somebody in the New Statesman that was talking about this, saying that you know almost Len McCluskey and the people that don't want that motion to succeed. Um, because it'd be embarrassing to the leadership, I suppose. Um, they're really keen that like people like Blair and um, Chukramuna and people like that come out in favour of a people's vote against the leadership because they think it will rally the base against the idea. So it does show you that these these um, when we've talked on this podcast several other episodes about the, the the public support or otherwise of these things. I don't think we necessarily revisit that today, but on the Labour Party point specifically, it does show you that like there is appetite for a second referendum in the Labour Party, but Blair getting involved isn't going to help, is it? Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, we've t- we've talked through the numbers, and I think it's very easy to make that case that it doesn't help at all. Um, but there is an argument the other way, which is essentially what Blair is saying is stuff that if you're a Remainer, you you want to be had in the public debate, and no one else is capable of commanding the attention that Blair gets. Um, clearly, there are other people making the case. Um, but I think, I mean, if you look at the prominent voices on the Remain side, other than Blair, they're mostly, maybe pretty much entirely, either people who are sort of not not really in politics and just sort of speak up now and again, actors and, and so on, and singers, mm. um, or they are kind of single-issue remain, remain campaigners like Gina Miller, who are kind of prominent, but they are pigeonholed as the Remain voice. So they're there, and there's an element of, well, they would say that, wouldn't they? I guess what there just isn't really a massive amount of are people who are famous and credible as policy voices. And I think it's still the case that Blair is credible, even if he's distrusted by many and disliked. He's certainly taken seriously. Um, people who were sort of in that camp, you know, former former senior statespeople um, or or current, um, who aren't sort of known as being the Remainer, um, who are coming out and making these arguments. So, in the absence of those people, then I guess you could sort of say, well, from Blair's perspective, what else is he supposed to do? There's a vacuum with these arguments that he thinks should be being made. Who else is making them? No one. So. I might, I, I might as well. That, that he he is there saying this stuff. Well, he did come out, didn't he, and say that he was going to be more involved in British politics and stuff like that. Um, 
I guess this is an example of him doing that. I mean, it will be interesting in the next, in the next few months to see if anybody does emerge that's more contemporary, whether it's someone in the Labour Party in Parliament or whether it's, um, I don't know, a, a sort of J.K. Rowling type figure. That's yeah. a, sort of top, but, top but of my head. I mean, but... There's a problem with both of those, isn't it? I mean, J.K. Rowling, maybe, but she is still sort of <clears throat> someone who's outside policy coming in and, and making a policy perspective. The trouble with anyone in the Labour Party is Labour politics is entirely reflected through the prism of Corbyn scepticism or pro-Corbynism. So, you know, Chuck Ramuna says we need to remain and look, it's seen and as people a, say uh, you would say that. But yeah, yeah, exactly. It's seen as a move against Corbyn and uh, rightly or wrongly, it's it's seen as that. But you sort of you're not going to get past that as long as it's people who are known as as strong opponents of Corbyn. OK, well, look, we're John McDonnell to, to say it, maybe, but. Even then, it's a kind of stab in the back. As long as Corbyn's position is seen as um, what you know, a soft, soft Brexit position, then anyone from Labour who speaks differently is going to be seen through that through that prison. Which is why the trade union debates actually might 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 feel um, very niche and very sort of unimportant. But actually, you know, if, if the position of the Unites and GMBs and these sorts of uh, people does change, then it, you know, it could have an impact on things. But of course, whether that actually manifests itself in any notable policy change, I don't, I don't really know. But all of that obviously reflects on what you said a minute ago, which is um, were someone like Cameron to re-emerge and come out as a kind of passionate anti-Brexit campaigner, then perhaps he is someone who fills that kind of space. Now, obviously, there is still an element of, well, you would say that. It's you know, only been a couple of years since you were leave, leading the, the Remain campaign. But... Mm. You know, he is still a credible voice who hasn't really said that much. In fact, I mean, it wasn't that long ago that he was overheard, what, caught on the live mic saying he thinks Brexit's going very well. Now, that sounded like a kind of talking Britain up as a sort of uh, representative of the country. But, you know, it, you've still got to assume that he's looking at this and thinking that this isn't what he wanted. Well, it, it's easy to... Um... He's still reason. I'm not saying I'm not saying he'd have a political comeback, but he's still reasonably young, isn't he? He can have a role in public life. I just have a. I mean, maybe this is too cynical, but I just have a gut instinct that his his priority is probably the Conservative Party being in power rather than anything else. I mean, because I, you, you think about it, the, the, the Remainers that are typically the most likely to be against another vote are the Tory Remainers, and I wonder if a, and there's not been a lot of polling around why that is. Um, I suspect it's a bit of party loyalty going on, right? So if the Tory Remainers had a leader that was had a real oomph about them, and I'm not, you know, there are very strong people like Anna Soubry, and you know, these are very sort of good campaigners, but. It's not quite the same as a former prime minister, is it? So, I mean, I think if he was to come out and say this isn't going well, even in the short term, it needs, you know, Article 50 needs to be delayed. It would carry some weight, but I guess we'll have to wait and see. I won't hold my breath. But what, so what, as you say, your point is that that threatens the Tory party's majority as an election because... And there's a lot of Tory voters who were being encouraged then to look at the party as. Well, I just think, thing. I mean, before you even get to a general election, I think it just it just destabilises Parliament, doesn't it? If it if it whips up the Dominic Greaves and the people that are kind of would would probably, if given the choice, if given a free hit, they probably would. Uh, get, they would. I think as it, there's a joke about whipping a dead horse somewhere there. 
Yes, and on that note, let's uh, let's uh, leave it there. Um, that's all we've got time for this week's um, Political Betting Polling Matters podcast. Big thanks to Leo as ever for joining me. Um, if you like what you hear, do share us on social media as ever. Give us a positive rating on iTunes and a comment. Helps uh, the algorithm gods push us out there further. And you know, do get in touch and uh, give us some uh, suggestions for any topics you'd like us to discuss or guests you'd like to us to invite to have on. We will be having some more guests in the future. Um, we're trying to arrange some different things. Um, But for now, that's all we've got time for. Thanks for listening and have a good week.